0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Victoria Shepard about New Book A History of Delusions The Glass King, A Substitute Husband, and A Walking Corpse. For centuries, we've dismissed delusions as something for doctors to sort out behind locked doors. But delusions are much more than bizarre quirks. They hold the key to collective anxieties and traumas. In this groundbreaking history, Victoria Shepherd uncovers stories of delusions from medieval times to the present day and implores us to identify reason in apparent madness. Well, Victoria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, how was your week? Have any notable events happened, or something exciting? <laughs> well, it always feels very
1: exciting here here in London at the moment. It feels like a very strange moment globally and in London. And um, of course, my book is is about to uh, be published, and um, so I'm my you know I'm very alert to echoes and rhymes in political situations and and society at the moment. Um, obviously, I'm not in a position to uh, kind of diagnose delusions um that's not i'm a historian but certainly um sitting in london we're having a, a big vote in the houses of parliament uh, as we speak um in westminster talking about people who are whether some whether our prime ministers uh, misled the house um and uh, yeah so it's uh it's a strange time for it's a very timely moment to be talking about people's beliefs in themselves and in their own uh, um, their own reality <laughs> if that makes any sense um, so I'm very acutely aware of that um, obviously life I have a five-year-old son um, and actually that's been very interesting trying to d- explain to him to explain the book to a child um, also uh, in certain ways, has been quite an interesting thing, and I tried to. I started trying to do that this week, um, and uh, I always find that an interesting process.
0: <laughs> you have to approach it from completely different direction, doesn't you it? Have to,
1: you have to complete. Yes, exactly, and uh, you have to distill it. And it's surprising, actually, um, how much how perceptive five year olds can be about simple ideas such as. People who have a, one fixed false idea about about themselves, which is the definition of delusion that I, um, I I'm frame, you know, I'm, I'm I'm hanging on to in terms of my books. obviously, it's a very um, nebulous topic. Uh, minds are very messy, and uh, there's all sorts of biology as well as psychodynamic um, cut undercurrents uh, going on when we talk about this topic. Uh, so I try to. You know, the definition that I'm using of delusions is um, is very important. Uh, and so trying to distill it, trying to talk, trying to explain to a child about the, you know, the idea that there might be, that people might have beliefs about themselves that other people wouldn't agree
0: with was, was actually quite a useful way of distilling it. Yeah. So you already <laughs> mentioned that you are a historian. Can you tell us yeah. a bit more about yourself? yes so i um i've been a
1: history documentary maker for many years um and i've made documentary programs on for for radio for for the bbc on a whole um wide variety of history and history of science subjects uh so i have come at this topic um slowly i've kind of edged towards being very interested in psychology, psychoanalysis, neuroscience, and and this topic now delusions that I'm I've written a whole book about. I, I came at it sort of sideways. Um, so my, as I say, so my his, my historian hat has been very broad. Um, I made a documentary series about the history of the, about the periodic table. I'm with with Oliver Sacks. I I've, I've been even though I'm not a scientist um, by training, I'm a historian, but I, I I've been very interested in in uh, science and the history of science. Um, and this, this area delusions, um, is a very new, um, sort of area of study in its own right. Um, and whilst, you know, the history of, of madness in in quotation marks has been very well, um, and scholars have, have written like roy porter have written very wonderful and fascinating books and andrew skull on, on the history of madness delusion sits somewhere very particular um somewhere between neurological and biological understandings of the brain um and psychoanalysis and uh, more psychodynamic interpretations of why people behave the way that they do and they have has, delusions have a lot in common with um um fairy tales and things it's it, so it's it's very it's a very interesting niche to to find myself in and as a general historian social historian um it's been very exciting because it does a lot of it does feel quite undiscovered and I I hope I'm doing something a little bit new in my own small way but sort of putting a new lens um on psychology so rather than looking at forensically looking at, at, at individual lives over a really long period of time. So I've taken 10 lives from a really long um, period of time. Um, so they're actually from sort of 800 years. They're 10 cases and they span 800 years. Um, I'm really trying to look at look at the minutiae of the daily lives and struggles um, of the individuals whose stories I've chosen, people who, who've experienced delusions in the past and who's, whose case studies have been written up and sort of remain there for us so I felt very much um, I've been you know exploring in the archives to really try to really try to get a sense of what their daily lives were like what they were contending with and how the delusions function and then of course along the way I've learned a lot and had to include and kind of accommodate new thinking about The biological and organic brain uh, factors that go into somebody experiencing a delusion. Do they coexist? Um, How much of it is biological, how much of it in any given delusion might be understandable through a psychodynamic lens? And it's obviously a dance between the two. Um, And I've just I've been completely captivated by learning, taking a historian's lens, but also speaking to uh psychologists, neurologists, and trying trying to understand how delusions function and trying to see how the how history sort of speaks to now. Um and luckily <laughs> I think I think they really do speak to each other. I think there really are common threads. You know, I, I have I I started I started the whole um journey completely by accident. I was researching something else, uh another history of science story, and I came across the story of the of a king of France, King Charles VI. Um, he was a 14th-century king uh, who came to believe that he was made of glass and he would shatter um, if he sat down. And he was, it was real life and death for him. He would, apparently would wrap himself with blankets because he was so convinced that hard surfaces would do him in. And of course, initially it's a it's a kind of comic premise. It's absurd. The thought this king, he's dealing with the Hundred Years' War with, with England um and but privately he's he's worried about smashing if he sits down um and so it it grabbed it grabbed me literally I was looking I was researching something completely differently and I thought what what you know what a what a bizarre scenario what a bizarre proposition um but then as as is the case with so many delusions once you start to unpick it and I, I went to to speak to a psychiatrist in Leiden in the Netherlands who um has had studied had really looked into and met some people who'd experienced glass delusion as it as it became known in early modern europe he'd met some contemporary people and i spoke to him and we we started together to to try to think about glass delusion and how it might function so i was a sort of a historian who's found myself in this really interesting um realm (laughs) and i'm loving it i'm I'm, and i've learned so much um and i've enjoyed being able to speak to um psychiatrists and psychologists um and neurologists as i say and try to just try to see if we can understand what's going on and what seemed like very um bizarre they've always been written off really as or sort of fetishized objectivized as, as um objectified as Marvels of the mind and uh, ununderstandable. i or actually initially an imbalance of humors um, in the kind of classical world, or, or possession by the devil for hundreds of years. Delusions were possessed was, uh, were a sign of that you were possessed by the devil, and nothing more. Yes, to see how the two, the, how the different disciplines, uh, and people are more and more interested in this area, and obviously things like paranoia, like conspiracy theory, which. Is a very old delusion type, um, and very timely, obviously. The rhymes are there, the echoes are there now in the in uh, global politics. Um to see how much how much we can understand about where they come from, how w- where they spring from, how they function, and uh what they offer people who are experiencing them. Because that's probably the most startling thing. Two startling things that I've come across. The first being that, that research in 1991 in baltimore showed that we're all somewhere on on, on the spectrum of uh, of delusional we all have at least one fixed false idea about ourselves that if we asked our loved ones they'd say oh, that's that's not true um and nobody'd ever really asked the general public about their you know fixed false ideas or potential delusional thinking before and when they did they realized that we all we all have at least one fixed false idea about ourselves um so that was a uh a really interesting kind of way into it realizing that you you couldn't stand we all have skin in this game you know we all we all we all have fixed-folded ideas about ourselves and so then the question is well what, what, what function might is it could it could they be protective in some way um and my thesis I suppose and as much as my book has one and having researched all these 10 people is that, that they really are protective in many ways. And they, they function in very similar ways across the centuries. Um, and they have, they're rather ingenious, <laughs> they're rather ingenious kind of uh, survival self-protection strategies often. Um, and, uh, so I, I, I sort of hope that the book shows you these people's lives and how they function and 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 I I felt very much so when I was writing it that they began to
0: talk to each other yeah excellent such a great overview (laughs) so your book a history of delusions I was wondering so you already mentioned a little bit on on how you how you went about writing it and when when you really decided that you wanted to write something something big like a book on this Mm. topic Good question. So
1: I made a, a, a radio series, first of all, um, with a clinical psychologist called Professor Daniel Freeman, who's a professor of, uh, his, speci- his sort of speciality is um, delusions and paranoia in particular. And he led, so we made this series for the for the BBC, and he led 10 conversations. We found 10 individuals who very generously, very bravely, um, were prepared to talk on on the BBC about their experiences of of, of delusions of, of a, an alternative reality that they'd made for themselves. Um, one woman thought she was Christ. Interesting, it was a woman. Um, anyway, there were there were there were ten people who spoke to us, and Daniel um, led those conversations. Uh, and I was finding sort of companion pieces from history and telling the story, trying to put it in historical context. And I realised that no book had been written that did that. Um, there'd been some of these characters, one or two of them had had were kind of footnotes in, in other histories of, of um, madness, but really not, not centre stage. And there wasn't really the story of the birth of psychiatry and of how delusions were first sort of, individually coined so the kind of principal delusion types and so on hadn't really been told and it's an extraordinary story a lot of it a lot of it started in uh in paris after the revolution when the discipline of psychiatry was really beginning and the revolution had allowed uh renegade uh, people sort of into the establishment really and they were for the first time asking people uh to talk to them at length about what was going on in their minds Um, they were inevitably because of the trauma of the revolution there were some extraordinary delusions at the time people who thought that their heads had been chopped off by the guillotine and some in one case which I include in my book somebody who's a clockmaker who said that his head had got the wrong head not only his head but has had his head been chopped off but it had been mixed up in the basket with somebody else's and his teeth were actually much better than the one he'd got and and so on so this story I was contextualizing, and then I realized that there were there were so many other stories that we didn't have room for, and uh, that it it was a whole history that um, I really, really wanted to write. I think I thought there was a space for it um, to to really expand and try to know these people and understand these people um, as more than just um, case notes um and i've became really close to them i mean it's interesting because as i was writing it was it was during lockdown uh, in london so i did spend a lot of time with these people and obviously it was a very strange and uh uh odd time at the very least of it least odd some obviously for some people had it very very badly for me it was just very intense and peculiar um and yeah i f- i felt like i really got to know these 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 characters Um, and they were really good company (laughs) so anyway it was it was the desire to write a whole book about it was the sense that really it was underexplored and that the historical context of the subject hadn't hadn't been expanded upon and um, it was really exciting to try and do that
0: yeah so let's delve into some of those topics that you cover in your book and Let's start with the very basics. So imagine that we all are your five year old son. <laughs> and can you describe what are delusions?
1: Yes, very important this because obviously delusions, you know, minds are messy uh, and complicated. And many people who experience delusions are also experiencing psychosis or and so on and so forth. So I the the, the sort of definition in a psychiatric sense the, the the technical definition of, of delusions which i'm I'm using is a, a fixed false belief um about yourself or the world that you hang on to uh despite plenty of evidence from other people um that you won't let go of um you may well be high functioning and uh, in other regards I mean you may well be perfectly lucid but you the definition that the, the the clinical definition is, uh, if you like, and the definition that I use in my book is is a is a fixed false idea that you that you won't let go of. Even in fact, the you know part, very important part of the definition is that it it won't be influenced by evidence by definition. People cling to this a delusion for life and death, um, and it's not something you can persuade somebody out of with logic um so that that would that's the that's the definition that i'm framing um the, these case studies with or that that's that's uh, the criteria if you like for the for the people who whose stories i tell who whose life stories i chose
0: and what do we yeah. know about how do those things arise in our head about how delusions
1: arise mm-hmm. Well, looking at the cases and researching and immersing myself in the subject, I, I found really three principal triggers that, that I identified that, that felt true and have felt true for hundreds of years. Um, the first um, is they seem to be triggered by a wretched existence, put put very simply. So a reversal of fortune is often a trigger. Um going from, you know, high status to low status, either with often with women, it's being, you know, uh, dumped by a lover or politically going from a, one of my characters, James Tilly Matthews, who was a 18th century tea broker. He went to um, France and got involved in the revolution and got very excited. He was a lowly man from London, but got involved in the revolution and then got thrown thrown out because he, he was suspected as being a spy and lived in, poverty in south london so and that's that was absolutely how then his paranoid conspiracy theory first sort of emerged so a kind of humiliation reversal of fortune um the second being really major thing that you pick up is people who are trying to accommodate um irreconcilable forces Irre- irreconcilable things in their life that they're trying to assimilate and they just can't. And again, that seems to be, delusions seem often to be an answer to that, uh, a way of the brain sort of, or the mind um, just calling it in, in, in a way, simplifying the world uh, because it, it, it can't sort of sustain Conflicting demands on it on itself, or conflicting beliefs. Um, And the third, as with the the Glass King, King Charles VI of France, you know, delusions are often really quite beautiful, quite poetic metaphors for yourself. For they often seem as though they're um, instructions to the world about how to treat you. Now, I'm not saying that we're doing this consciously. I'm sure most people delusions are not doing this consciously. But uh, so with the glass delusion, for example, which became lots of people in early modern Europe experienced it, it wasn't just this king, um, seems, to, you know, rather a perfect metaphor for sort of social anxiety, really, for saying, don't get too close, stay away, um, be careful of me, I'm fragile. And then also, of course, I'm precious. You know, glass. when, when glass delusion was a thing, glass was very new in the domestic space it was seen as kind of um, almost like an alchemy heating sand until it becomes something transparent making rock into something breakable but transparent was an extraordinary thing and people responded to the quality of glass so much so that they kind of um melted into it as a material um and you know glass delusion there are still people i found victorian cases i found more contemporary cases through the psychiatrist that I met in, in the Netherlands of people who, um, you know, it's 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 only become even more. I would I would argue, even more of a kind of beautiful way of telling the world how to treat you, believing that you're made of glass, um, and uh, yeah. So those are the sort of three, very very broad brush sense, but those are the kind of three triggers that kept cropping up, conf- conflicting forces. Um, a reversal of fortune um, and a sort of way of representing
0: yourself of telling others how to treat you. Yeah. And how does the person experience delusions? Do they know what's happening? I mean, it's interesting because talking, when I made
1: the series, not in the book, but in, when I spoke to, when I had the chance to speak to uh through Daniel, but to speak to these to people who'd experienced them who were who were still alive. Um the answer is is no. I mean, but that you can also to some extent know and not know at the same time. So uh, the person that uh Andy Lemayne, who was a psychiatrist in, in the Netherlands, had spoken to, who'd come to him with a glass delusion in the 90s, said, I'm like that pane of glass, he said, Doctor, I I'm there and I'm not there. Uh, so he believed it he wasn't sort of it wasn't an affectation it wasn't a kind of um it wasn't a riddle you know he really did believe that he was transparent and that he would smash um and I would say that's a i'd say that's a very defining aspect very much a defining aspect of delusions that they are absolutely life and death. The, the jeopardy and the stakes are, are very, very. There's real jeopardy, and there's real life and death importance to to hanging on to that belief, uh, almost like a life raft. And so they're, they're people, I would say, don't generally um, sort of suspect. You know, it's a, an absolute belief. Although some people then do explain that afterwards they can kind of they can come out of it a bit and know that they're not Jesus, for example. But then go back into it, wake up. A surprising number of people experience it, almost like some people say, literally like electricity down their spine. Um, and that the belief arrives really that uh, somatically and that quickly um, and sort of like a switch almost. Um, like an epiphany, that's probably a better way of putting it. Um, so people can it can ebb and flow in people's lives, the the people I've I've spoken to or the people I've researched. But I wouldn't say that people are ever ambivalent about them. They are absolutely fixed and non-negotiable, the beliefs.
0: Yeah. It just sounds like people are being immersed in this virtual reality, which feels so real, isn't it?
1: Yes, and it's, uh, you know, I say in the book, and I think it's true, you know, you might think at the beginning, you know, they, they're very, they are bizarre stories. And the premises, you know, a woman who thinks her husband's been murdered and substituted for a double or, uh, you know, the man who thinks he's Napoleon. Or, um, But actually, they're not so much uh, an escape from reality, which is what they seem to be, as a kind of, well, they're a new reality. Um they're a completely new reality, uh, and when I kind of suddenly perceived that, I, I I felt like I had more of a handle on what on a beginning of a handle on what might be going on with them. Um, they are ingenious ways of creating a, a reality that's that's possible to live in. You know, if people, these are people who have realities that they they're finding impossible. Um, and they create, they're forging an entire universe on their own terms that they, that they, within which they feel safer or they can, they can function. So it's given me a real um, kind of new respect for the ingenuity of, of the human imagination. Really, it sounds a bit highfalutin, but I, I really, I do believe that. It's just, it's incredibly, they're incredibly ingenious, <laughs> Um, all of them and at, at, at helping people to to live and uh and function and you know respinning an impossible reality for themselves um so i'm in awe of them
0: and yeah. are these uh, sort of alternate universes grounded in the physical reality so for example can the delusions uh, take um uh, I don't know, maybe place in another world or on a different planet, for example? Or does it have to be within our uh, reality or without uh, the realm of our grasping?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. All of the, I, you know, I've never come across them being from another reality. I mean, obviously conspiracy theories and, you know, you can think of contemporary ones in uh, rife at the, in America at the moment um, that in, might involve elements of sort of alien life or whatever but actually they tend to be the person the, the, the change in reality is the person's status within it or um yeah i'd say you know their status within it or the, the the identity of the person of their nearest and dearest it's it's a reframing of 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 reality a, a reorganization of, of reality but not a sort of um not a um, whimsical kind of fantasy land. All of the punctuation and the, the landmarks are the same. They're just in they're rearranged. You know, Margaret Nicholson um, was attacked George the Third um, outside St James's Palace um, because she was she was demanding her fortune and her her place in the British royal family. She she was the the heir uh, to the British throne um, and she was going to get it she didn't of course she was institutionalized and um, another woman in the 1920s who who became she, she experienced a delusion that's known as the rotomania where she believed that george v so a few kings later along was in love with her uh kind of reverse stalking or it it's tantamount to stalking but the belief is kind of reversed the belief is that they're in love with you so you don't have agency um, they're the ones who are pursuing you um, but anyway that that it's a kind of status delusion um, or Napoleon speaks for itself you know kind of archetypal in a way delusion that enlo- enormous numbers of people have believed that they're Napoleon or, or in a religious context Christ um, and that obviously is a sort of, uh, you know, status assertion, making yourself the centre of the world, uh, giving yourself importance, um, often, well, exclusively from, from an existence where you, you really didn't have that power. Um,
0: and how the topics of delusions uh, changed throughout the history? Well, they—I ha- mean, you know, there are sort of quintessential.
1: I argue in the book that there are there are era defining or era representing delusions. So erotomania is a very twentieth century delusion. I argue it, it kind of it emerges at the time of the of cinema uh, appearing on the scene and and sort of true love on on the silver screen for the first time being in towns and villages, um, across the world, Hollywood sort of beaming itself around the world. Um, and so this phenomenon of people believing that, that they are meant to be with somebody that this notion of true love and, and that somebody is true love, you know, is, is all the, the themes of delusion in, in the 20th century, you know, the, uh, that makes a look, that fits very closely in, and and uh, as does of course paranoia which is the most common and has been for the past 50 60 years delusion type um, and of course nanotechnology delusions often follow new technology and sort of seemed like glass you know people respond to new technology and new materials and that often uh, Crops up in in uh, in delusions and paranoia, of course, unseen forces that are influencing people. Um, you know that's that's been, of course, ever more present in uh, since the fifties and the first kind of surveillance and bugging and and the Cold War and so on and so forth. As as nanotechnology has got smaller and smaller, so instances of people. Um, Making uh, paranoia, uh, their delusions, having a kind of paranoid conspiracy um, at their heart, have have increased. Um, but there are so there are sort of era-specific or era-defining delusions. But yeah, the, the kind of principal types so delusions of grandeur, um, delusions of doubles. Actually, so, you know the sort of principal ten or so delusions. Really, and I, I look at ten, and there are many, 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 many more that the World Health Organization acknowledges sort of principal types. But the the ten that I would say are the the sort of most perennial um, have been so since certainly since I could I could find any evidence. Um, Robert Burton, who who wrote the Anatomy of Melancholy, which was a, a kind of encyclopedia uh, of well, a million, a million and one things. Um, in 1621, went back into the libraries and found classical cases of delusions, and uh, and wrote about them. And he, he 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 writes about people in in antiquity who thought they were made of um, pots. You know, put uh, they were made of ceramics, so a similar principle to to glass. Um, and people who think that they're already dead. I have um, a a lady, Madame X. We don't know her name. Often they they were given little pseudonyms by the psychiatrists who who spoke to them um, in in France. Often, uh, sort of eighteen hundreds onwards. So we don't know their names often, uh, frustratingly. But Madame X believed that she was already dead. And you know there are cases from in Robert Burton's book. um... From antiquity, people who thought that they were already dead, and stories about how their doctors would sort of use ruses, what they called ruses, to try and trick them um, into understanding that, of course, they weren't really dead. Uh, and, and so, yeah, the 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 particular types of delusions, the principal types of delusions crop up again and, and again and again. And it's very, it was very suggestive of the fact that they you know human nature hasn't changed and uh and so the function that delusions have for people hasn't changed either and so it it, you know that people have found um that well the, the, their delusions seem to function and echo each other and seem to function in similar ways across centuries um and that, that's very interesting to me. I mean, of course, and I know from, from your, um, your background, the, the neuroscience of it, of course, has been a very interesting challenge to me. And uh, the d- new discoveries um, on an organic level about what might be going on in the brain when somebody's experiencing, experiencing a delusion. At first, I found that quite difficult to accommodate because I'd taken, op- you know, openly and happily quite a psychodynamic view on delusions thinking well can we understand them can we look at these lives and see why what it is in their life in their social surroundings that's triggered this this delusion um and of course that's true with uh uh for instance madame m who's my first my first case madame m in paris in the 1920s and she's the one who wanted a divorce she demanded a divorce on the grounds that her husband had been murdered and substituted for a double now, of course, if you look at look at that, take a psychoanalytic lens to that, and you see how on, you read the you read the accounts, and you can tell how unhappy she was. Um, and you know Freud and all that thinking would suggest that Doppel, you know, that the idea that you, you you think a loved one's been substituted for a double comes down to the fact that it's much easier to believe. Your loved one, your husband is a double, than it is to to kind of accept that you don't like them very much anymore. You don't like somebody close to you anymore. So the kind of, you know, that's been the prevailing thinking. And that was certainly the, the lens that I put on those kind of stories, thinking about what's the what's the, yeah, what's the what's the psychodynamic explanation for this? Um, but then the uh the neuroscience now knows that. Uh, dementia with Lewy bodies for instance that particular which I'm sure you know a lot more about than I do but the the, the particular dementia type um, dementia with with Lewy bodies shows up with people who have a delusion of doubles very often it's a a malfunction of the right part of the brain frontal cortex and it's a disruption of recognition of the recognition part of your brain on an organic level and so the left side of your brain steps in and says, "Well, I know I'm, that person's familiar, but I don't recognize them. This is all disrupted. Well, they must, they can't, they 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 can't be them. Then they must be an imposter who looks like them." And so, at first, I thought that's quite complicated to hold both of those two things. To say, "Well, there is this these fascinating and I think very uh, credible explanations, psychological explanations," and then how how does that square with with these biological explanations that they can see with scans, of course we can't scan any of the characters that I talk about because there wasn't there wasn't such a thing, so I can't know whether Madame M uh, had an, anything going on in her front right cortex. And but in a sense, I kind of came to the conclusion that it doesn't matter that those two aspects about what might be a play in, in delusions, whether they're you know ovarian tumours. I've I've learnt towards the end of writing the book about. A tumor in the ovary um, that looks very much like a particular brain cell in the right, again in the right brain, right front brain, and that an autoimmune response can attack both the tumor and this brain cell that looks like the tumor, and cause an inflammation in the right brain and delusions. And there's, you know, there's a a large school of thinking now that perhaps a lot of people who were, for instance seen called possessed by by the devil um were in fact had a very achievements that were just never uh discovered etc etc so i've i've i'm now i like the the fact that those two things can be can coexist uh i I find it fascinating but it it, it, you know um yeah obviously we we can't know (laughs) we can't know what the balance is with any of them
0: and what are prevailing hypotheses on what functions can those delusions serve? Um, so yeah, so
1: helping, essentially helping to create well, an alternative world that's easier to live in than than, the, than your real world. Um, so functioning as, yeah, as as creating something that's better you know that that kind of protects you protects you really uh, from a wretched existence you know if you're Napoleon um, but you've actually you know experienced great poverty and you suddenly become Napoleon that's the most kind of obvious demonstration of how it might function um, or how delusions function because it's such a simple idea that you know being this kind of uh, icon of um, self-taught power and domination over the whole world you can't get higher status than that really you certainly couldn't when this kind of uh epidemic if you want to call it that of, of napoleon turning up at, at mental hospitals in in paris happened he was the kind of poster boy for high status um somebody who knew exactly what they were doing and he was in charge of most of the world etc so it's, oh, it's clear, that's a kind of clear demonstration of, it's, a clear, it's the easiest one to kind of uh, understand, isn't it, about how a delusion might function. Some of them are a little bit, uh, much more nuanced, but they still all make sense. Um, as I say, you know, the, the, the belief that some a loved one is a double. It turned out that Madame M, not only did she have a complicated, it's all very opaque and difficult to know, but her marriage was clearly unhappy. She you weren't allowed to get divorced at that time in Paris as if as a woman, um, or not to initiate one anyway. Um, but also she'd lost children during the First World War, um, several, in very quick succession. So she, trauma often sits at the back of delusions. Um, and again, when you unpack this very sensational idea that her husband had been murdered and spought for a double, she also had the belief that. Her children hadn't actually died. They'd been abducted, uh, taken underground to the catacombs under Paris and and substituted. So they were still around or they'd just been stolen. There was a crime afoot. And, of course, you know, you can see it's very moving and painful, but you can see how an unbearable tragedy, such as she'd experienced trauma, it's easier or not easy, but it's easier to believe um uh, that you know you, you just need to find them they haven't they haven't gone they're just underground she, she uh, um and you need to solve the crime you need to tell the police uh it kind of organizes your enemies so delusion like that really organizes the enemy it gives you a job to do uh compared to nebulous grief or pain of loss there's, there's an obvious appeal to that it, uh yes it, it gives you a job to do, and she in fact believed that you know she's there's this moment, there's often amazing moments that I try to capture with each of them um images that they they come up with themselves often and she she describes seeing um a lorry with uh uniforms so this is this is during the first world war in paris and before the before the end of it in nineteen eighteen and um she sees these uniforms being loaded off. Um, off a lorry, uh, and you know we can look at that and see that you know suddenly you think, gosh, you, that an image like that might re- make you register that, that simply how many young men who would have been wearing those uniforms were no longer wearing those uniforms, and the the kind of mass death of the war, um and it, and it became part of her became part of her delusion that that they hadn't died these young men in the war, they too were down in the catacombs. And she has this kind of um, uh, like Dante's kind of Inferno image of layers under in the under Paris, where the naked soldiers are, um, who are not dead. Um, and yeah, so that's obviously it's all incredibly exaggerated and dramatic. And all of these cases are oh, they have kind of thriller elements and the volumes turned up you know they're Technicolor they're wild and kind of exaggerated but if you if you just look at the how they function you can see you can see that maybe in, our, in small ways in our own lives as well how ingenious and touching it might be to take something unbearable and turn it into something that you can try and you can live with and you can also try and help or solve yeah
0: and are the delusions a solely individual phenomena or can it be on the uh, level of society for example
1: well that's a really interesting question um obviously there's a kind of st- almost moves into the ideas about group hysteria and, and so on but sticking strictly to my terms of you know fixed false ideas and belief I think it, you can see, like with glass delusion, for instance. So, Charles VI of, of France was the, the famous case, and and some monk chroniclers wrote wrote this up. So that's how we know that he was, you know, running around wrapped in duvets. But then there was a kind of um, a phenomenon, you know, such that there was the people talked about the glass men, you know, capital G, capital M. And it was tied up with um, this notion of scholars' melancholy, of a kind of um, melancholic uh, disorder, what well, I suppose what we would call depression now, crudely, biggest parallel, the kind of melancholy uh, how they saw it. But they saw it in terms of a, of a too much black bile. the humors were out of out of whack. Um, and of course it was exclusively a male thing, and um, then because they didn't bother to talk to women about it. Um, I, that, I would love to know. I found Vic- Victorian women who who thought they had legs made of glass, and case you know. But uh, women were not part of the scholar's melancholy um, idea. They weren't. They just simply they didn't turn up at the doctors, and, and they weren't talking about they weren't talked to you about it. So we, we won't know. But my guess is that there were just as many women as men um, experiencing this. But the ones we know about. Um, you know, there were people who wrote plays. So it turns up in fiction. Cervantes writes a, a, a short story called The Glass Graduate about this idea about people who think they've turned to glass became a real thing um, in Spain, in France, um, across continental Europe. And it was in the literature as well as in the case studies of, of doctors, um, which is fascinating. Something about glass uh, really, really... Was, was was affecting the, the psychology of a lot of people it wasn't just it wasn't just one one king unstable king um it was a thing um obviously more more easy to understand less poetic but you know the, the people who thought that their heads had been cho- chopped off by the guillotine when in fact they'd survived I mean trauma I suppose trauma is the thing that really seems to create mass you know multi- multi case multiple cases of the same delusion type there's something about the guillotine the speed of it the me, me, sort of mechanism of the guillotine the speed with which people could be killed by it and therefore the the trauma um after the revolution um people feeling it's like that moment when you if you walk you know if you cross a road without thinking and you're on your phone or something you're not looking properly in a car you know skims your nose and you think I nearly did you know I think so many people at that time in their own minds sort of had died in some profound you know mentally uh and so it, that that delusion was there are li- there are tens and tens even you know this is the people that were documented of people turning up at the large new uh, mental hospitals that had had sort of cropped, had, were founded in Paris after the revolution where a lot of this work was um, happening where psychiatry was kind of birthing being formulated and uh saying that their heads had been cut off and that would you know lots of people and and after a very hard time in um in Paris after the death of Napoleon there were more people thinking they were Napoleon after he died than, than before um in the, in the 1800s uh so trauma or mass experience you know um and so you can it's 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 i look at you know the woman who thought madame x who thought she was already dead well she'd lived she'd lived through the siege of france of siege of paris poverty starvation uh real real starvation during the siege of paris she'd lived through that it's not hard to see again why the trauma of that and the the negation of self had happened to her and on a population level you know you can understand shared experiences like war uh with if the particularly if they have a particular something particular like the guillotine something new and terrifying in terms of technology how those two things a group trauma and a new piece of technology and suddenly that's a useful that's something that the human mind can kind of hang on to uh and can peg um mental imbalance too and it becomes then you see you start to see multiple cases of the same kind of trauma of the same kind of delusion
0: naturally, many of our listeners will have uh, this question, like all of mm. us have been through this uh, historic event in our yes. lifetime of yes. trauma. So what do you think about Exa- uh, that? Yes.
1: Well, yes, exactly. And, you know, it doesn't have to be. I mean, sadly, many people will have been through wars. Uh, but even those of us who haven't been through something as enormous and, you know, macro-scale trauma, you know, even, you know, the character who madame x again so she had lived through the siege of paris and uh and that will have been enormously traumatic but i also found in 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 her interviews with the psychiatrist that she mentioned something had gone horribly wrong at her first communion uh so trauma can be now i tried to dig around and think well, what what might that have been uh and you know, she would at that time in the eighteen eighties in France. Um, your first communion was an exceptionally important moment in your life. Can't quite work out what, what went wrong, but there are various options about, uh, you know, what she might have done or not done. Did she did she fast? Did she confess? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Did she fall over? in front of the priest and the family. Anyway, in a sense it's irrelevant. The point was that she had mentioned it. She was now a grown woman. Something had happened to her when she was, you know, ten or eleven. And so trauma can be, you know, it can be something very personal, um, a moment in your life. Um and I think we can all relate to that, um, regardless of our kind of broader social background. Um so the subject does sort of allow you to make um and I hope the book will encourage people to or inspire people to make those connections with their own um triggers or things that they've been through. You know, you could apply these are these are these examples of as I say, they kind of have the volume turned up, um, and they are extraordinary in the true sense of the word stories, but at their heart can be very ordinary. Um, ubiquitous kinds of pain or trauma that most lives have a bit of. Uh, most of us have a bit of, and I think that's why it is moving. Um, you know, um, finding these moments, even though they, in the case as a historian looking through, you know, I, as I say, I can't scan their brains. I, I don't know what else might be going on. I don't know, or, or even in a psychological level, you're, you're, you're feeling your way towards understanding what their life was like but every single person gives away um, elements of you know little you get snippets tantalizing snippets about the uh, moments from their past um and sense that difficult uh things that they're having to accommodate or live with um and you kind of know when you find them as a, as a researcher they stand out a mile it's interesting um, within the details, of, if they're just talking about their their past life. Uh, and they jump off the page. Another another case: woman burns recalls burning photographs of her of a relative who'd been in the Boer War. You know, intriguing. We can't can't know exactly what that's about, and the story is too complicated to sort of paraphrase. But you know that there's something there. Uh, and it gives them all a kind of aspect of a thriller because um you're trying to you're trying to decode these people i mean delusions kind of to to some extent they do ask for an interpretation they are quite performative they are even if it's not conscious and it's not conscious you know they they you're sort of trying to find the hopes and fears and uh, they they all they are communiques i would say they are communiques from one person to, to other people, saying, try and understand me, try and try and see what they're pleased to, to be worthy of interpretation and time and attention. And so in my small way, you know, that's that just... And actually, that's been true. That's true of all of the characters and, and of, of delusions all the way through, that actually the only way of people ever emerging from them seems to be an audience that's prepared to meet them a little of the way, maybe not even quite halfway, but enter into the delusion, not just say, don't be ridiculous. That's, you know, not throw logic at it, but walk towards, just sit with, um, sit with the person and hear what they're trying to tell you. Um, and I, I, I have come to the conclusion that, that that's, that they are, they are kind of, um, they are asking you, they're like little fairy tales, they're asking you to to interpret them. Um, and it speaks to all of our need to be worthy of interpretation, I think. Worthy of attention. Again, it's very simple. Um, but many of these people, and of course many of them are women, uh, don't get that. Most people don't get very much of that. Really pure Intention and in that sense that they're worth interpreting. Uh, and I think that's a really, um, it's a nice connection to have with people who've lived such a long time ago.
0: Yeah. And what are your hopes for the future of our understanding of delusions and even the treatment of the people like you just explained uh, who have them?
1: Yeah, that's a really, really interesting question. Um, I know that there will be more and more sophisticated you know, scanners and understanding of the brain. But I don't think that will teach us so many things and it will be fascinating to know what biological revelations we'll have from from neuroscience. Um, But I don't think that will ever answer all of it. I think that, you know, they are understandable on a psychological level too, often. Um, I mean, it's very important I must say this, because it is very important, you know, as I said at the start, delusions are, you know, minds are not neat, and people experiencing delusions making that make them a, a risk to themselves, potentially to others, like erotomania, like conspiracy. It's important not to, or might maybe experiencing psychosis, as well as a kind of classic delusion. So it's important not to Not to sanitize the subject, if you see what I mean. There, there are. It needs to be taken seriously, and um, it's not a kind of entirely, uh, you know, yeah, sanitized sort of um, psychological adventure. Um, There are wilder shores, and there are particularly dangerous ones. Erotomania, you know, the belief that someone else is in love with you when they're not, can lead to extremely dangerous situations it, it means that not only are you putting you've somebody else's love for you but you're also taking no responsibility for your actions because it's somebody else's love etc and paranoia you know the, the desire to neaten the world might be very understandable and it is you know it's a very complicated world invisible forces you know uh invisible threats it's, it's very comforting to uh, have um one plot you know whether that's q or whatever you know to one overarching plot one can see psychologically why that's important but to oversimplify to not be able to live with any ambiguity or ambivalence is a very dangerous thing too so it's sort of um i, I wouldn't want it to i wouldn't want to suggest that we're going to um that this is a sort of yeah to, to sanitize the subject it's wild and there's dangerous aspects to it certainly but i I hope I hope that the book and or a small part in it but I hope that I hope that the psychological exploration of the subject and the neuro neurological approach to it w- will talk to each other. I hope that it w- it will become I hope you know I would love to see that more of an interdisciplinary <laughs> um way of looking at it because I think that there will always be both at play. And that the desire to understand, uh, you know, we we, it, we went from saying it was it was, um, you know, ununderstandable. It was possessed, it was demonic, it was humours or imbalance, or it was demonic possession, or it was completely ununderstandable. And now then we said, no, no, it's all brain science. And I suppose this is as a, a plea to say we can understand it on a psych, we we on a psychological level, we can understand that their function at the same time as we explore the mysteries of the brain under the microscope or, uh, and so on. And i I'm just, you know, I, I'd love, I'd love to see those two approaches kind of going together and feeding off each other.
0: <laughs> that makes sense. Well, this has been a truly fascinating and insightful discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: Ah, well, um, I'm currently working on a, a book about uh, an antiquarian called uh, George Fabian Lawrence, who, who um, he was an overseer, he worked for the British Museum in the, just before the First World War, uh, and he would pay the navvies and the mudlarks and the amateur archaeologists to bring him whatever they found as they were digging through London Elizabethan and Roman layers of London um and there's some extraordinary stories of uh, skullduggery and um lost treasures um to do with that so I'm I'm writing a biography of of, of George Fabian Lawrence
0: That yeah. oh, sounds exciting <laughs> I hope you come and talk to us about it once it's <laughs> done I'd love to I'd love to <laughs> <laughs> and what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about what you do and also your book
1: um, so my book is published by one world, um all um b- booksellers. I think it's available to pre-order. it's it's released on the first of June and uh, in July in, in the US I think in Europe in, in June also. Um, and I'm VictoriaShepherd.org. dot um, org. but yeah, um i I put a I put you know little snippets of what I'm working on up there on a blog um and i you know i i will be making uh various programs as well i think uh, and i hope to yeah i hope to carry on in the sort of history of science vein too and always looking for good good subjects
0: fantastic well thank you so much for joining me today thank you
1: so much clean i really enjoyed talking to you